Yes. Okay, that's good. Okay. Okay, this morning we're in Nehemiah chapter 2, and we'll be starting this morning in verse 17. Uh, let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, we do thank you again for the opportunity to study your word. And as we go through this history from uh, your interaction with your people in the Old Testament, we learn about you, about your character, about their dependence upon you, and, and how you work out the details to accomplish your will in this world. And, and we just pray that as we, as we study that, that we will learn ourselves how you can work out the details in our own lives to accomplish your purposes. We pray that you'll bless our time now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I think to get our context, uh, we'll be reading in Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's start at verse 11 and go through 20. So that gives us our, our context, and I guess front row is Robert. You get to start. <laughs> so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. Oh, yeah. I went out to the valley gate toward the jackal well, jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mouth to get through. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected, inspected the wall, and then I entered the valley gate again and returned. Uh, verse 16, Nehemiah chapter 2. Verse 17, Joe? Nehemiah 2? Okay. Then I said to them, You see the troubles are we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned in fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. But when Sunballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonites, servant in Geshem and Aram, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right or memorial, in Jerusalem. Okay. Now we're not... I'm not going to make you read anything in chapter 3 unless we have a volunteer that wants to read those. Because <laughs> all it is is names. Uh, lots of names. Um, anyways, last time uh, we started in verse 10. This is uh, Nehemiah arrives in Judah and we, we saw that his two main uh, people who were in opposition to his uh, 
mission there. We have Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official. And they were very, very displeased to hear that someone had come to Judah to help the Jews. And so he comes to Jerusalem, and after three days, he goes out at night to inspect the walls. His purpose is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And apparently he hasn't told anybody that that's why he's there. And so he goes out at night with a small group of men, and he's riding an animal. Um, there's a small party. Um, they go out and they go around some of the walls of Jerusalem. It's, it's not clear from the description whether he, they make a complete circuit of the city or not, but at least the southern part of the city, he goes around and looks at the walls. So he's trying to get an idea of, of the actual condition of the walls uh, before he talks to the local officials. And then we can see in uh, verse 16, you know, he says, lists all the people he hadn't told, which is basically everybody. <laughs> no one knew why he was there. So this morning we're starting at verse 17, and this is where he's going to kind of break his plan to them, let them know what he's doing. So verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. So here he's finally letting them know his main purpose in coming to Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls. And he begins by basically telling them what they already know. Now the walls are torn down in ruins. The gates have been burned. They have no protection from raids, attacks. They're basically defenseless. Now he goes on and says that Jerusalem is desolate or in ruins. And it may be that um, from the time that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the city 140 years earlier, that it was still in ruins. If it had no defenses, why would anybody move into the city? The reason they lived in walled cities was for defense against raids, against their enemies. Jerusalem had no walls, so why should anybody move back into the city? Now, the temple was there. They had rebuilt the temple, but you had the temple, you had the temple servants, the priests. Everybody else who had land probably said, why, why move into Jerusalem? So the city was probably still desolate. So anyways, uh, Nehemiah then implores with them to rebuild the walls. Join with me. Rebuild the walls. And a city really um, with no wall around it was a disgrace. Um, it meant they were totally powerless. They were totally at the mercy of the surrounding people. It's kind of like being a hundred... 100-pound weakling uh, with a bunch of 200-pound bullies around you. Um, and so they were bullied and, and abused. Now, if you remember um, from Ezra chapter 4, they had tried rebuilding the walls themselves during the reign of Artaxerxes. So that's we're 20 years into the reign of Artaxerxes. So somewhere in the previous 20 years, they had tried to rebuild the walls. And the local um, opposition had 
sent a letter to Artaxerxes and he sent a stop work order. Um, and then the Samaritans proceeded to destroy what they had accomplished. So why would they try again? It hadn't been that long ago. Everything had been torn down. They'd been officially told to stop work by the king. Um, why should they even try again? So Nehemiah is going to tell them that this time is going to be different. So let's go on and look at verse 18. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. So Nehemiah begins by telling them how God had been blessing his uh, mission to rebuild the walls. So it wasn't just Nehemiah's idea. It was God who was behind this. It was God who had moved him, who was blessing. And a lot of times if you're, if you're doing God's will, yes, there's opposition. But you can also see the pieces providentially falling into place. And you know that God's saying, yeah, I'm behind you on this. Let's keep going. Uh, and so he, he shared that with them. And then secondly, he had the king's blessing. Not only did he have the king's blessing, he had a decree from the king saying to Asaph, who had the, in charge of the forest, you will provide lumber for the gates. You will provide lumber for a fortress. You will provide lumber for a king's resident or governor's residence. So he had official um, letters. It's almost like um, you know they had this project that they really wanted to do. They got a stop work order from the county, and they're just sitting around waiting for a build for someone to show up with a building permit. And Nehemiah shows up. They got the building permit. And now they're going to go back to work. A little bit like we had back with the temple. Similar thing happened. So the Samaritans, the other surrounding peoples, might not like what they're doing, but they had the king's permission this time. And we can see the response. They say, let us arise and build. This is a very enthusiastic response from the whole group. Not just a few people. Um, and they began the good work. So they all knew this was a good, profitable, important work for the city of Jerusalem and for the people of God. Now, one of the things we'll see over the next one and a half chapters, um, Nehemiah will record all the things that the leaders and the groups of people did. And Nehemiah doesn't mention himself very much, although in a couple places, when there's some opposition sticks up its head, then Nehemiah deals with that. So I don't think he was actually managing the construction because, and again, they had already tried to rebuild the walls, so they had an idea of what they wanted to do, and you know they seemed to know what they're what they're doing. So he wasn't the construction manager; he may have been the overall project manager and saying, "Okay, I'll deal with all the politics and the." Posing governors and, and those things. And I'm going to let you go ahead and build the walls. So that may be the way it worked. Um, okay, going on to verse 19. We mentioned the opposition, and here they are in verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official 
And Geshem, the Arab, heard it. They mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So we already saw Sanballat and Tobiah back in verse 10. Um, Sanballat was probably from lived north of Jerusalem. Um, Tobiah the Ammonite. Ammon was the region to the east of the Jordan River. So he was, if you go down from Jerusalem down to Jericho across the river, now you're into Ammon. Um, but we have a new name here. Um, it's Geshem the Arab. And we had looked uh, last week, let's, let's turn to it again. Nehemiah chapter 4, does someone like to read verse 7? This is another place where it lists the opposition. 4-7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Okay. We, again, we have uh, Sanballat and Tobiah named, but then we have these other uh, people groups, Arabs, um, Ammonites. So, And then the Ashdodites were uh, Philistines. They lived on the Mediterranean coast. So we got people listed here from north, south, east, and west of them. They were surrounded by opposition. Um, the Arabs uh, were a semi-nomadic tribes from the Arabian Peninsula, which is uh, way to the south and to the east of the land of Palestine. But the commentary said by this time they had expanded up into the southern part of Judah, into the Negev and that region, and into Edom. Um, and so it names Geshem in particular. Um, the archaeologists have found his name on ancient inscriptions. And there's a silver chalice where he's called the King of Kedar. So here's another ruler in the region he did not want to see any competition from the Jews. So these pagan leaders uh, began to mock this new effort by the Jews uh, to rebuild Jerusalem. They were trying to demoralize them and to get them to stop. And one of the things that the, the first time they got the construction stopped, the main argument they, they made to, the, to King Artaxerxes was that the Jews were going to rebuild Jerusalem and rebel against you. And if they rebelled against you, then you're not going to get any tax money out of them. It's going to hit you in the pocketbook, so you don't want that to happen. So again, we see this... Um, in the very last part of verse 19, are you rebelling against the king? So that same accusation comes up. Why would you build a wall if it wasn't because you were rebelling against the king of Persia? And they had had uh, governors in that area rebel. And so it was not a un totally unlikely thing to happen. But one of the things that we've seen before is the king trusts Nehemiah. That's why he sent him back. He was his cupbearer. He was the one who kept him from being poisoned. So you have to trust the man. <laughs> so he needed an ally in this region, and Nehemiah was going to be his ally. So the king would probably not be dissuaded by this argument. Now one of the things interesting, it sounds like these three men are standing there talking to Nehemiah, 
But when you look geographically at how spread out they are, that's kind of unlikely. So the commentary suggested this probably was a result of news traveling and letters being sent back and forth, these responses. And then, then also we see in verse 20, Nehemiah's response, which may have been also in the form of a letter. He says, so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah responds to their mocking by invoking God's power and God's protection. He does not try to defend the ability of the Jews to do the work. He doesn't say, we're a strong people and we will do this great work. No. Our God will have, will see it done. Our God will protect us. And again, he, he refers to God as the God of heaven. And the pagans use that term to, rep, to refer to their most high God. They were polytheistic. They had lots of little gods. But the most high God, the creator over all of this, was the God of heaven. And so the Jews had learned to use that term to refer to Jehovah. So he's not saying that it's just our local God of Jerusalem, but it's the God of heaven who is going to... Um, protect them. Uh, it's interesting, back in verse 18, when um, Nehemiah is speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem, he says, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. So he uses a personal term, my God, not the God of heaven, like a title, but my God, and made it personal. So their faith is in God's ability and not their own. Let's look at Psalm 102. Turn to that. Psalm 102. We'll see why God is interested in this city. Psalm 102. Would someone like to read verses 13 through 17? Verses 13 through 17. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. Okay, so here we see... Zion is, is the city of God, and he demonstrates his glory through Zion or Jerusalem. Even to the end of the book of Revelation, we have the, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and, and God's glory is being shown through that. He's, he is the one who has chosen this city to demonstrate his glory. And so they know that... They, that God will hear their prayers for his protection and for his assistance in, in rebuilding the city. Now at the end of this letter to the opposition, uh, Nehemiah tells them that they have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. And another version says no share, no claim, no historic right to the city. So these other peoples could make no claim based on family inheritance. 
Remember back at the beginning of Ezra, they had a list of, you had to show your genealogy because land was passed from family to, you know, from father to son and so forth. If you didn't have a genealogy and couldn't prove that you were Jewish and that you had a right to that land, you didn't have it. Um, these other peoples, they had no family inheritance. They had no right to the land. Um, they could make no religious claim on on the city of uh, Jerusalem. They did not worship Jehovah according to the laws and regulations that he had given his, his people. The Samaritans were kind of, uh, they had kind of a dualistic type uh, religion where they worshiped their own gods and then mixed in some of, uh, of the Mosaic law because it, going back to the story, they, They'd been attacked by lions and things because they thought the local god was displeased with them, so they kind of picked up and worshipped him along with the other gods. So they really had did not have the, a religious claim either. Let's go back and look at Ezra chapter 4. We have kind of a similar statement when they were rebuilding the temple. Ezra chapter 4, and would someone like to read verse 3 for us? So here, uh, this is 94 years earlier, uh, the local um, peoples wanted to help build a temple. The Jews said, no way. You have no part in this. You have nothing in common with us in building the temple. And so, uh, so they, they were not, they were excluded from building the temple. Now the Surrounding people are excluded from helping build uh, the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, again, there was no historic claim. Jerusalem had been the capital of Judah from the time of David, 1000 BC. So now we're at 444. So it's been, uh, what's that, 550 years or so that it had been the, ca the religious capital of Judah of the Jews, the political capital of the Jews. Uh, it's, they're just reclaiming what is theirs here. A lot of times, uh, if you watch travelogues or something and they go to a city and they talk about, this is such a cosmopolitan city. They got people from all different nationalities. This, Jerusalem was not a cosmopolitan city. <laughs> that was the last thing the Jews wanted. It's, this is our city, you stay out. Um, maybe over time it has evolved somehow into that, but at that time, no, it was exclusive. Um, so now beginning with, uh, in, in chapter 3, uh, we have a record of the people who rebuilt the walls and the gates and which section of the wall they worked on. And as we go through this, uh, 
we're not going to look at all the details. There are some interesting things in here. I'll, I'll touch on those as we go along, and um, but not look at necessarily all the details. And I was I was thinking about uh, this chapter, and it's it's part of God's word, and I'm sure that it was very important to someone at some time somewhere, but not necessarily to us now. Um, Archaeologists like it because this is this is the most detailed description of the city of Jerusalem that is in the scriptures. Um, I think the other thing we can learn about it is there's uh, like 32 verses in this chapter, and every verse has one, two, sometimes three different family families or groups of people who are working together on the walls. So we've got, you know. 30 to 50 different groups of people who have all come together to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So this is a major effort. And people come from cities all around to do this. And I think that's something we can see here as we go through it. So let's start with verse 1 in chapter 3. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. So it starts with Eliashib, the high priest. So this is kind of important because it indicates that Nehemiah had the support of the priests. The priests were some of the most influential leaders in Jerusalem, and, and he needed their support. Let's go back to Ezra chapter 10. This is where Ezra is dealing with the issue of intermarriage with the other surrounding peoples. And someone would like to read Ezra chapter 10 verses 5 and 6 for us. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all of Israel take an oath that they would be, do according to the proposal, so they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib. Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Okay, there's two things we can see here. First, Ezra got the support of the priests and Levites, just like Nehemiah has. If you don't have the support of the people, it's not going to work. Um, working on projects and paper mills, one of the things that the project engineers, if they didn't know it when they started, they learned really fast. If the operators don't want your project to work, it's not going to work, no matter how well designed it is. If they do want it to work, they'll make it work, even if you did a really lousy job of designing it. You needed the support of the operators. And so here he has the support of the people, especially starting with the, with the priests. And then secondly, you know, looking at this uh, verse in Ezra, Ezra went to mourn over this, uh, this intermarriage problem. And he went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, that's our high priest. At the time of Ezra, he was not high priest yet. Nehemiah occurs 13 years later, and by that time, Eliashib is the high priest. 
So I want to look a little bit more about who he is. In Nehemiah, let's turn to chapter 12. Get a little more background on Eliashib. Chapter 12. I'll just read verse 10. And Jeshua, remember who Jeshua is? That's when they returned to the land. Jeshua was the high priest and Zerubbabel was the uh, political leader, the governor. So Jeshua became the father of Joachim and Joachim became the father of Eliashib. And Eliashib became the father of Joada. So he was the grandson of Joachim. Jeshua or Joshua, who was the high priest when they returned to the land. Um, that was, a, again, 100, was 104 years earlier or something like that? 140 years earlier. No, 94 years earlier. Let me get the dates right. Um, 94 years earlier they returned to the land. So that tells us his background a little bit, but let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. Because there was a problem with Eliashib. So Nehemiah chapter 14, starting with verse 4, says, Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah. Have we seen that name before? Tobiah, the Ammonite official who is one of his opposition, he's related to the high priest, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offering and frankincense, the utensils and tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed by the Levites, the singers, gatekeepers, and contributions for the priests. So he had cleaned out a room in the temple for Tobiah, the Ammonite official. And we will see, when we get to Nehemiah chapter 13, uh, how Nehemiah has to deal with that. So here's Eliashib. He's starting to build a wall, but he's also related to the leader of the opposition. So we think our government's a mess. That was, this is some of the politics going on that Nehemiah was dealing with, just to give you a little insight into it. Is there a problem there? Yes, there's a Conflict of interest, I think. So back to verse 1 in chapter 3. Um, so he, Eliashib leads a team of priests. They rebuild the sheep gate. Um, so again, looking at the short geography lesson, <laughs> the city of Jerusalem was built on a, a ridge that ran north-south. The original city of David was captured from the Jebusites. It's the southern part of that. They, David and Solomon at the north end, at the higher end, is where they built the temple. They built palaces. And, and so the north end is higher. and It's kind of a long, narrow city. And the Sheep Gate was at the very... I'll try to do this so it makes sense to you. And <laughs> done it backwards for me. So you got the city at the northeast corner is the Sheep Gate. And then up, up here in the north end is the temple. It was called the Sheep Gate because they brought all the sheep in there for the sacrifices. So, um, 
it also says in this that the, they consecrated it. And the commentary said, well, one, it may have been because they connect, it was so closely connected to the temple and the sheep that you know, they thought they should consecrate it. Or the other one is, well, this is where they started the construction. This is kind of like the, the blessing to kick off the whole project. But we see that they consecrated it. We don't see that anywhere else in the rest of the chapter. Um, but they also worked from the northeast corner. They worked west across the northern edge of the city. And they built the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. So it's assumed that they built this wall, they built the two towers, and then they consecrated all of this. The Tower of Hananel is mentioned a couple other times. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Someone would like to read this for us. Verse 38. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 38. Okay, so here Jeremiah is prophesying the rebuilding of the temple, or rebuilding of the wall, excuse me, rebuilding of the wall here. And he specifically mentions the Tower of Hananel. Also, let's look at Zechariah chapter 14. Okay, chapter 14, and someone like to read verses 9 and 10 for us. And the earth will be king over all, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and his, and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Eva to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. Okay. A lot of these other gates we don't see mentioned back in our chapter, but this Tower of Hananel, or Hananel, however we might pronounce it, uh, is mentioned. So it's a, it was fairly well known to the Jews um, and, the, and the Tower of the Hundred. I was kind of speculating about who built this and when. David and Solomon both built the the temple complex and their palaces off the north end of the original city. And so this wall would have extended around and protected those. And so I'm guessing that's who built this, these towers. Um, and this is the only place in this whole list where we have, I think, towers mentioned. We have lots of gates, but these are the only two towers. And when you look at the... Um, topography here, you know, they're on a ridge and so this is the upper end of the ridge there may be, it's kind of level here this is probably the best place to attack the city because <clears throat> come down the top of the ridge, everywhere else you have to go uphill you know, and people are shooting arrows down at you but here you're more on the level and so the towers would give them some elevation where their defenders could be high and they could throw lances and shoot arrows down on the attacking armies so we have these two towers on the, the north end of the city. <clears throat> and as far as their names, I'm guessing they're 
you know, David had his mighty men. You know, I can't remember if he had a group he called the Hundred. Uh, Solomon, I think, probably had heroes, that, and they were, and these names would have been uh, given to honor uh, uh, probably warriors of, of that time. <clears throat> okay, so we're starting at the as far as the description through this chapter. We're starting again northeast corner. We're going across the north side, heading west, and the whole description will go to the west side, then we'll head south down around the, to the southern tip, then back up the eastern side and make a complete circuit counterclockwise as we go around the city. So he doesn't just pick pieces here and there, it's, it's this continuous circuit that he's making here. <coughs> okay, well we need to, this is a good place to close, we introduced the construction of the wall and we'll start going into all the little bits and pieces after this uh, as we go on. So, Russ, would you uh, care to close for us, please? Sure. Father, we're ever thankful for this time in your word and the history of the uh, rebuilding of the wall and the people that did it. We pray for the hour to come, Lord, but now we pray for this season. We have six days left before the uh, day we celebrate your birth. And we just pray, God, that the people in this world would come to recognize that and forget all about all the commercialism and the toys and clothes and etc. Just ask that you uh, still on their hearts what the real meaning of this time is. Through Son Christ we pray. Amen.